Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Roundup. As we witness the world at war, we also witness the evolution of tools of warfare. We see that from conventional warfare, the world is now moving towards hybrid warfare. As a result, while some wars like the Ukraine-Russia crisis are visible, much of the conflict is not visible to most of us. So when we evaluate the ongoing warfare in Syria, Russia, Afghanistan, North Korea, and Africa to China, we realize that much has changed in the warfare ecosystem. We are no longer dealing with conventional warfare, but we are witnessing the asymmetric hybrid warfare and the return of the Cold War. Now the world has witnessed countless conflicts over the years. For example, Islam versus the West, civil war versus religious warfare, ethnic versus sectarian conflict, progressive versus conservatives, and so on. So the growing geopolitical theories and conflicts raise a reality check on the rise of the West problem versus the rest of the world. America is a symbol of the West and it represents the West, so to speak. Now, since geopolitical stability is foundational for progress and development, we remain deeply anxious about the return of the Cold War as these wars appear to have no end. Professor Dr. Alfred Toro Hardy has recently penned a new book, America's Two Cold Wars, From Hegemony to Decline. He has graciously accepted Risk Group's invitation to give a talk on this new book and is here today to help make sense of the return of the Cold War. Professor Dr. Hardy is a retired Venezuelan diplomat, scholar, and author of multiple books. Please join me in welcoming Professor Alfred Toro Hardy to Risk Roundup. We look forward to your talk, Professor Hardy. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, well, essentially, um, the book, uh, are we going to have an interchange of question and answers, or should I go for, for should I talk about the book in general? Yeah, I, at this point, you talk about the book in uh, general, why you wrote that book, and uh, anything high level you want to say, and then we will go for the short you know, Q&A. Okay, fine. Um, well, essentially, the reason of the book was the following one. In 2020, I wrote a book called China versus the US, who will prevail. You graciously interviewed me in the occasion of the publication of that book. Uh, in, in, in that book, essentially, I um, define the reasons why there was a, an ongoing Cold War between China and the United States. Uh, but I felt that I needed to go forward with this subject. And I felt that uh, a good way of understanding this emerging Cold War with China would be to compare the Cold War that the US waged during more than 40 years with the Soviet Union with this new one. And so essentially in this book, there are two main questions that are posed. The first one, is how different as a strategic contender the Soviet Union was to current China. And secondly, 
how different was the United States of today to, his, to its former self when it was confirmed in the Soviets? And I built upon these two questions a bit the narrative of the book. And, and, and essentially it, it gives the different perspectives of uh, how to a certain extent uh, the United States had the wind on its back when it confronted the Soviets. All the right configuration of factors was supporting the US. Whereas in this case, the opposite seems to happen. And hence, uh, this, is, uh, this is going to be much more challenging for the United States than uh, its first Cold War with, uh, with the Soviets. In addition to that, and that is a point that I mentioned in the book as well, uh, the, the US should have never allowed uh, both China and Russia to coalesce, to coalesce in the way they had. Because the double rivalry of uh, Beijing and Moscow, and Moscow presents a huge, a tremendous challenge for the US. In the best case scenario, this would represent a tremendous distraction for the US in relation to its main competitor, which is definitely China. But in the worst case scenario, both rivals could uh, coordinate their action to overflow America's uh, capability of response. Hence, uh, we are in the United States, it's facing an important challenge. And in my conclusions, I, I, uh, I ask um, if, if, is there any other option for the United States than going into this Cold War? Because uh, on the, the advice of common sense, the United States should learn to live with an emerging China if possible. Of course, that's not a given because you need two for tango and it's not clear that China would be willing uh, to, to, to reach an agreement to coexist with the United States at a point in time in which they feel that they have the, the win at their back, in which they feel that they are uh, at a historical moment that they have to take advantage of. So essentially that's, uh, that's the narrative of the book. Yes, no, I, I, I hear you. And first of all, congratulations on the book. Uh, I think you have done a great service uh, to the world by putting down your insights, uh, putting down your thoughts and sharing the insights uh, for us to better understand what is at stake and where we missed, you know, what, where the problems emerge. So uh, I was reading the book and at one point you wrote that although multifaceted, the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States had ideology at its, as its core underpinning element, something for which America was particularly well suited. Now, as we evaluate this coming Cold War, as you, you know, suggest, what has shifted from your perspective? How has the ideology evolved and what is the focus now? Yes, I would say that indeed ideology was the core underpinning element 
in the Cold War between the United States and, and the Soviet Union, which gave America a great advantage as the birthplace of liberal democracy and its most devoted preacher. Um, this, uh, the US was particularly well suited uh, to claim the mantle of leader of the free world. Um, and several reasons explain why the US benefited from an ideological contest. In the first place, and notwithstanding that, that the many contradictions that the notion of free world entailed, uh, freedom was an arrow directed at the Achilles heel of, a, of communism, a totalitarian system where the lack of uh, liberties poison all the rest. In the second place, its liberal convictions allowed the United States to follow the same basic grand strategy for decades, meaning since the end of World War II until the collapse of the Soviet Union, the US was able to sustain the same course of action. In the third place, America's focus on liberal order translated uh, in, in the need of building, into the need of building an international architecture in accordance to those principles. And hence, uh, it built a group of institutions, it was instrumental in building a series of institutions that became fundamental and uh, that uh, helped much uh, the US in attaining its objectives. In the fourth place, America's economic freedom contrasted advantageously with the Soviet centralized planning economic model, a model that was disconnected from profitability and efficiency. Uh, the Soviet collapse, unsurprisingly, was, was to be seen by the whole world as the success of one ideology over another. Nothing would be more useful at this point in time, uh, in this fresh, fresh confrontation with China, uh, than a new ideological rivalry. As it happened in the first Cold War, this would provide a strong sense of purpose and a much needed, a much needed co coherence to its such. Uh, and not surprisingly, President Biden has become an ardent proponent of an ideological contest between democracy and autocracies, aiming at a fundamental debate between the two models. However, as America's liberal order has been invaded by the cancer of populism and its basic norms are under threat at home, ideology has become a non-starter. At, at this junction, should the US want to exceed it, its liberal credentials, it would be handicapped as from the beginning. Several polls in different countries show that uh, there is no trust in the US at this point in time as a result of the domestic problems. A uh, string 
2021 Pew Research Center poll, uh, taken in 17 countries that could be considered as friendly uh, to the US, uh, close allies of the US, one may add. Uh, only 17%, uh, sorry, uh, only 17% of those surveyed believed that America's democracy was a good example to follow. So this is a reality. America, America's problem home are creating a problem to its liberal narrative and hence it, it, it becomes a non-starter in terms of uh, a, being the core underpinning element of this new Cold War. Yes, I think you made an excellent uh, point there that the trust, the declining trust is at the core and it is a non-starter, the ideology that they are trying to sell. So uh, that, that is, uh, I think you are right on. Uh, you have you know, identified a very core challenge facing America and uh, American allies at this point. Now, in, the, in your book, you also say that efficiency is the defining element of the new Cold War. Can you elaborate on how efficiency is at the core of this uh, Cold War 2.0, if you, if you can? Yes, I would say that in the same manner in which ideology has become a non-starter for the US, the Chinese haven't shown the slightest interest in promoting or waging an ideological contest. In China, this is a road to nowhere. Since Deng Xiaoping Xiaoping time, results uh, are all that matters. The cat has to catch mice. A straightforward social contract exists between the Communist Party and the Chinese people since Deng Xiaoping and Deng's time. It, it would be something like, we'll make you better off and you will follow our orders. That bargain, that bargain can endure if the regime keeps delivering. And as Kishore Mabubani has, has said, since 1979, the Chinese Communist Party has delivered the best governance China has ever enjoyed in its entire history which translates that 84% uh, of the Chinese seems to be satisfied with uh, the government. Accordingly, an acute pragmatism impregnates the actions of both the rulers and the ruled in China. Delivering uh, becomes the, the, the catch world, the magic world. Uh, and indeed, one has to, 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 to understand that uh, during the last four decades, uh, the accomplishment of the Chinese uh, government has been testament to, to, to a very efficient government. The regime has not only lifted uh, 700 million of its citizens out of, uh, from poverty, out of poverty, but coming from way back economically, they are, they are in the anteroom of economic supremacy. Hence, uh, as former 
Australian PM Kevin Roth had said, uh, what uh, has happened in China is the equivalent of the English Industrial Revolution plus the Global Information Revolution combusting simultaneously, but compressed not in 300 years, but in just a few decades. Hence, this rivalry uh, will, be, will be one based in who delivers best. Uh, and um, contrary to the comparative advantage enjoyed by the US in its ideological contest with the Soviets, the, the country is badly prepared for a, for a competition defined in efficiency terms. Indeed, America first pulled in numerous areas in relation to other developed, developed countries, uh, as many of its domestic problems had been left unchecked for a long time. Three convergent reasons could explain why this has happened. First, the war on terror swallowed immense amounts of money estimated to be in the trillions of dollars which had to be diverted from the attention to domestic needs and domestic problems. Second, the everlasting influence in American politics of the Reagan revolution, with, which discredited uh, government and its capability to solve problems. And third, Americans increasingly, America's increasingly gridlock and highly polarized political system which has proven ineffective in tackling countless domestic problems. No, I, I think you made excellent points there. And the point that you made about China, the 65% of the population is happy with the government and how the governance, the country's governance is happening. But to me, I feel that what makes us happy Right now, they are happy with the resources and the material, you know, success that they all are uh, achieving and witnessing. But that can only make you happy for so long. Then your sources of happiness evolves. And that is when the real struggle for a country is going to begin. But uh, look, going back to your book, you write that China has undertaken a multilateral institutional building process that recalls the efforts of America in the uh, final months of the subsequent years of World War II. Do you think we will see a greater emphasis on regional institutions? Well, actually, China has undertaken a multilateral institutional building process that recalls indeed the efforts of the US in the final months or subsequent years of World War II. And uh, as, in American, as in the American case, this aim at building a favorable international architecture. There is a crucial difference though, which is the fact that China's international architecture tilts more into trade and economy than into security and defense. Uh, this process goes from the promotion of the BRICS to the free trade area of the Asia Pacific, from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to the Silk Road Fund, and finally to the Belt and Road Initiative, which 
is probably the most significant multilateral project of the 21st century. Uh, so China, uh, it's really pushing for defining an international environment in according to their own interests. Uh, but this transcends regional institutions as China aims as a strengthening a globalized economy where the country is where the country plays a leading role. In other words, China has become the main promoter and defender of globalization. However, the issue being that the trends are not moving in favor of globalization, but the opposite, but in the opposite direction. And this requires some further explanation. Globalization emerged as a result of political intention and technological feasibility. Now it finds itself seriously challenged for the same reasons. In both cases, political intention and technological feasibility are clearly identified with Western economies. The political impulse, impulse to globalization came from several converging fronts, all controlled by the main developed countries of the time. The Gat-Uruguay Round, the Washington Consensus, the structural adjustment policies of the IMF, uh, and the birth of, uh, and expansion of the World Trade Organization were some examples of this political will. Globalization, its Western promoters assume, would mainly benefit them because they, had, they were the fast moving nations of the time. And they suppose, they assume, that they, were, they would benefit from a rapidly moving global economy. Based on this assumption, Western nations and the economic uh, uh, multilateral organizations that they control gave the necessary steps to make globalization a reality. Political intention was reinforced by technological feasibility. This was centered in the so-called supply chains and global chains of value, which uh, allowed the offshoring of countless manufacturing and service jobs to developing economies. Mobilizing, monitoring, and controlling this huge process require, of course, that of huge technological advances in the field of information, telecommunication, and transport. However, political intention is reversing its course. It's moving in the opposite direction. The massive contraction of employment and the dramatic shrinking of middle classes within Western economies ignited this reversal. Globalization, indeed, has been under siege as a result of a wave of protectionist and economic nationalism. Technological feasibility on its side makes possible the onshoring of economic activities 
to the Western world. As you know better than anyone else, the convergence and feedback of digital technology and robotics, 3D printing, nanotechnology, bioengineering and genomics, and the Internet of Things, the new energy technologies, among other several leaps, are leading to the obsolescence of the supply chains and the global chains of value. Why indeed go manufacturing or looking for service providers far away when technology may allow for cheapest options at home? Hence, onshoring, which identifies with producing home or near-shoring, which identifies with regionalism, have gathered tremendous strength. COVID-19 has certainly given an important push in that direction, as the disruption of the supply chains that it created ignited inflation. Even now, we see Shanghai, which is on the closure, and, uh, and, and, and of course, that's... Uh, and, but on top of that, Russia's invasion of, to, uh, of Ukraine is providing a further and even more significant push. This not only resulting from the disruption of the energy and food supply chains, which in themselves are very significant, but essentially because it implies the return of geopolitical uncertainty. Yes, Henceforward, yes. economic security would require producing home or close to home. If the Western world could turn itself turns on itself, we will see two big economic spaces, Europe and North America. China will have, will have Asia. Hence, indeed, although China aims for, for globalization, probably you were right in your answer that trends seem to go in the direction of regionalization. Yes, yes. You're absolutely right. Because uh, especially with the COVID-19, it has made us realize that if we are depending on countries like uh, China for our manufacturing and country, country like India for our uh, pharmacy, you know, India is a pharmacy of the world. So if we are depending on other countries to provide us the essentials that we need in a crisis like COVID, uh, any pandemic, we need to make sure that we have the capability to produce all that, you know, onshore in our country or at least near shore in nearby countries. So we don't, uh, the supply chains don't fall apart. So yes, there is a lot that is changing and evolving, but you also write that the two decades that succeeded the end of World War II represented the golden age of America's foreign policy. What are your predictions as to the US influence in the coming years? Um, well, when the book was written, my perception, so, 
do I go ahead? When the book was written, my perception was that uh, America's credibility was a very low point. Uh, the fact that you had uh, at the beginning of the millennium, George Bush administration, which uh, underwent a unilateral way uh, that defined its relation with its allies in terms of with us or against us, that defined international relation by leaving aside cooperative multilateralism that had been so, so useful to strengthen America's position during the four decades of the first Cold War, when the, suddenly the trust in America began, began to, 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 to fall apart. Uh, really, it was a very bad moment for America's foreign policy and for America's credibility abroad. The eight, the eight years of the Obama administration were important in terms of rebuilding the trust in America, in rebuilding the, the, the role of the US in international multilateral in, in a multilateral cooperative environment. But the arrival of Trump um, create havoc on all this process. Having Bush followed eight years later by Trump and his eat, eat dog foreign policy is much than what the allies of the United States of the United States can withstand. So it was my impression when I was writing the book that uh, America was at a very low point in terms of its international credibility. And suddenly, Russia invaded Ukraine and almost from, from scratch, uh, the NATO uh, rebuilt itself. And now we are seeing a, an international coalition uh, which I couldn't have imagined, I, I think few people would have imagined just uh, months ago, months and a half ago. But how durable is this new alliance? How durable is America's influence? There are many considerations involved. If this is a long war, if Ukraine's result to be a long war, it could be very well be that the cohesion within uh, the, the Atlantic Alliance will simply begin to disappear. If, uh, well, what happens if tomorrow in France, Le Pen wants the election? Uh, there are so many variables to take into account. And the most important of them all is what happens if Trump once again, wins again, uh, the White House in three years' time. Uh, so these current alliance that we're seeing may be a very temporary one. Uh, there are no indications that uh, things have changed substantially and that the role of the United States has been reaffirmed. 
So this is very fluid yet. Yes, it is indeed very fluid. Now you mentioned that although the containment of China is basically the only foreign policy issue where both the Republicans as well as Democrats in the United States can converge a master plan on how to confront that country, that means China is totally lacking. What do you believe is the reason behind that? Why are both these political parties not being able to see eye to eye and not being able to create uh, how to go forward? Yes. Well, Republicans and Democrats have a common anti-China, anti-China Beijing attitude. This translating aiming at containing China. However, this falls short from a master plan in relation to how to handle that country. That would require of a consensual of consensual guidelines, and then that seems to be totally out of reach at this point in time, when Democrats and Republicans inhabit in different foreign policy planets. And not only in different foreign policy planets, but in two seemingly irreconcilable, irreconcilable uh, societies. Hence, the reason why no master plan is attainable in relation to China runs deep into the horizontal fracture of today's American society. Yes. Perhaps in order to understand the reason of that, or, or trying to understand the reason of that horizontal fracture would help us understand also the reason why no foreign policy consensus in China or in any other subject is attainable. Um, I don't know if perhaps I could talk a bit about this, but- uh, Sure, sure, please go ahead. Um, the, founding, the founding fathers of the U.S. Mistrust, mistrusted human nature, but instead of proposing an oppressive state to control human nature, uh, they aim at dividing power as much as possible. Among other things, these empowered factions could check one another through a negative equilibrium of forces. Competing powers and, fa and factions had no other option than to bargain and compromise. And as every rector had its personal, and this proliferated amid numerous interest groups, society could control itself. However, for this to happen, the emergence of an overwhelming majority had to be aborted. Very curiously, what we are witnessing today is a fusion of the factions, which is changing the anti-majoritarian nature of the American system. The numerous rectors and bursars, which were called to control each other through bargaining and negotiation, have merged within the two political parties meaning two great majorities. Republicans and Democrats have been integrating them within their ranks. Examples in these directions are many. There is an economic divide, 
whereby some sustain that lowering taxes to the rich promotes investment, while others believe in redistribution by way of taxation. There is a racial divide in which a shrinking white population perceives itself as besieged, while an expanding color population feels discriminated and vulnerable. There is a cultural divide whereby some hand to the past as an identity anchor, whereas other want to reinterpret that past according to current values. There is an arm-bearing divide according to which, while some feel entitled, others feel threatened. There is an abortion divide in which, while some see it as an attack against human life, whereas others see it as an attack against their body rights, and so on and so forth. And these multiple divides have merged into big blocks, into big majorities. Uh, so, no other country was so well prepared as the US to deal with vertical fracture in the same manner as it's totally unprepared to deal with this tremendous horizontal fracture. Um, as a result of this, it will be very difficult going back to the subject of uh, foreign policy and foreign policy towards China to find common denominators and a common policy as the US had in the past when it confronted the Soviet Union. Indeed, indeed, you're absolutely correct on that. It's almost like we are seeing two different countries in the United States, you know, nobody can, neither of the party and neither of the ideology can see eye to eye. And it's very, very concerning. There is an echo here in the, I'm not sure why. But you mentioned in your book that China accounts for 20, 25% of the global industrial output and contributes around one third of the world economic growth. In a few years, it will surpass America's GDP in absolute terms. While it already did so in purchasing power, um, so after 2030, it is estimated that a gap will begin accruing on China's behalf, who by mid-century should attain a GDP three times larger than that of America. Hence, China's possibility of outspending US military budget at will that is very concerning. So however, without reaching economic supremacy and still spending much less on defense than the US does, China has already developed the capability to maintain America's large defense budgets and superior military strength. So how do you think this is, how do you think they will achieve that? And how, what do you think will be the implications? Well, I think they've already achieved the capability to keep America's superior military might, superior military strength at bay. And I would say that there are three basic reasons for that. First, uh, they have attained this, but first, by maintaining a technological edge in asymmetric weapons. Second, by developing a retaliatory nuclear strike within a minimum deterrent 
uh, nuclear strategy susceptible of inhibiting America's use of its vastly superior arsenal. And third, by concentrating the bulk of its armed forces close to home within a area denial strategy at contracurrent with America's diffusion of its military forces all around the world. Let me explain perhaps a bit this. In the first place, China has become an asymmetric superpower outside the realm of conventional military power. Asymmetric uh, weapons allow China to overcome America's superior military budget and its technological advantages by focusing on its weaknesses, on America's weaknesses, on its Achilles heels. This means attempting to a generational leap, leap in military capabilities able to neutralize the superior conventional forces of the US. It's the equivalent of the disruptive power that we see in several industries, Netflix and their equivalent, and its equivalent in relation to the entertainment sector or Uber in relation, in, in relation to the taxi sector or Airbnb in relation to the of hotels. I mean, it's asymmetric capability of disruption. Asymmetric armaments aim at double target. The first group of weapons are directed at penetrated America's battle work defenses through intermediate range precision missiles. Good examples of these weapons are the, uh, and let me mention too, the DF-26 missile with a range of 2,500, uh, uh, 2,050 miles, which is able of striking Guam from China. Uh, and the so-called EF-21 ballistic missile known as the aircraft carrier killer missile, which can hit aircraft carriers more than uh, 1,500 kilometers away, miles away without being detected by radars. But, and, and let's see the implications of this. At the cost of just $11 million, the DF-21 missile can destroy a Gerald Ford class aircraft carrier uh, at a cost of more than $13 billion. So that is the essence of... Uh, but you also have a second group of asymmetric weapons that concentrate in crippling America's command, control, communication, and battle network uh, the networks. These armaments are identified with cyber and space warfare. So uh, the common denominators of asymmetric weapons is that they can destroy or render useless immensely costly systems with arms priced at a fraction of their cost. In the second place, faced to the overwhelming superiority of US strategic nuclear 
of the U.S. strategic nuclear arsenal, China follows a much less expensive road, a minimum deterrent nuclear strategy, one that simply aims at making the cost of Washington's first use of a strategic nuclear weapons prohibitive. Chinese analysts argue that within a cost-benefit decision, a limited nuclear force able to target uh, an adversary's uh, strategic points can deter a superior power use of nuclear power, of nuclear weapons. Uh, this requires, of course, of, of emphasizing its retaliatory strike capability, meaning it has to be mobile, at least, or has to be still in nature. And China has emphasized precisely that. Through road mobile missiles, difficult to find and destroy, and by way of missiles based on submarines, which are also inherent, inherently hard to discover and destroy. Moreover, Beijing has tested a hyper, hypersonic nuclear missile uh, hard to track and destroy. So, uh, for the US, its vast superior arsenal may turn out to be more theoretical than real in terms of its practicality. In sum, um, and in the third place, the US maintains costly global military overextension. Meanwhile, China keeps the bulk of its military presence close to home. In 2012, the US Department of Defense uh, released its uh, Joint Operational Forces concept, which stated that uh, as a global power with global interest, the US uh, should maintain, must maintain the capability to project military force into any region of the world in support of, their in of, of those interests. As expression of this approach, uh, the US maintains six regional combat commands across vast geographical expanses, as well as 750 bases in more than 80 countries. Meanwhile, China concentrates the bulk of its forces where they matter more, in its so-called near seas. This implies that the People Liberation Army can maintain a strong defensive position with short lines of communication to its front lines. This not only, to, uh, this not only reduces cost, but maximizes effectiveness through an area denial anti-axis strategies. Yes, absolutely. Very good points. Now you write that during the first Cold War, the United States had the wind on its back with all the right configuration of elements supporting it. What is your assessment of the second Cold War? Is the playing field conducive for America? Well, I must say that, uh, as you just mentioned, during its first Cold War, the U.S. had the win at, on, at its back, with all the right configuration of elements supporting it. 
the playing field was the right one. The core element ideology was its biggest strength, as we talked about before. Its support base was large, an extensive network of alliances reinforced its position. The consistency of purpose was clear cut. Both domestically and externally, it followed a clear master plan, a clear roadmap. The economic correlation between both, both superpowers clearly leaned on favor of the US. It, the US inhabited in the economic high ground. And the final objective was attainable, meaning containment, containment, the containment of the Soviet Union was a reasonable and plausible strategy. These factors allowed the successful outcome of the first Cold War. But in this emerging Cold War, the opposite happens with America confronting the wrong configurations of factors. The playing field does not favor it as the core underpinning element is its main weakness, meaning efficiency. The support base is faltering as credibility among allies has reached a historical low. Again, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we are living a fluid situation, but I think that in, in, in the substrate, credibility in the US is frail. Um, the consistency of purpose is weak, uh, as its political parties inhabit in different foreign policy planets and society, as I mentioned before, is utterly polarized. The economic correlation, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not good. It puts the US in a flickering place as in a few years time, the US will be sliding into the economic lowlands in relation to China. And the final object, objective, it's unattainable at, because containing China in its own background doesn't look as a reasonable proposition. On the other hand, China can excel in an efficiency-oriented contest. Its international support base seems to be wider as it has countless economic stakeholders around the world betting for its, for its success. Its focus and consistency of purpose are strong. Its economic strength will keep increasing with every passing year. And the notion of containment doesn't seem plausible. As a result, while the first Cold War ended up by projecting the US to the pinnacle of the international system, this new one uh, can propitiate America's window. America's two Cold Wars might thus signal its transit from preeminence 
to decline. As I mentioned before, with such an auspicious outlook, common sense would advise that the US explores alternatives to Cold War with China, avoiding a zero-sum confrontation, accepting the inevitable rise of China, and looking for, for a constructive cohabitation. Mm -hmm. However, as I said as well, even if the US would arrive to this conclusion, it is clear that you need two for tango. And China may be indeed an unwilling dance partner, as it perceives itself to be precisely at the time of the big power pushover. That is, in Xi Jinping's words, amid great changes unseen in a century, and when time and momentum, as he said, are on our side. So it's not that clear that even if the US was willing to reach an agreement, an agreement was reachable. Yes, yes, definitely. Very complex times. It will very complex times. We'll have to wait and see uh, where these go. But coal, you know, living together as two superpowers between America and China, it's going to be interesting, you know, because America is used to being the only superpower for so many decades. So it is uh, not going to be an easy transition if the reality remains that there are going to be two superpowers. But again, every day the scenarios change. Every day, the competition and competitive outlook change and the strategic uh, uh, security fundamentals change. So we'll wait and see. But if you look around the world at its many conflicts and define these wars more broad broadly, we see front lines everywhere, each with its own no man's land strewn with casualties. So as if you see Mexico or Brazil or South Africa, Phil Philippines, there is enormous violence, as we can see, you know, the crimes are increasing, the criminality is, you know, gr rapidly growing uh, in all these countries and even states too. So there is a, if we look at it, there is a violence perpetrated against, even if, let's say, you know, exa give example of just uh, categorically about women by those who fear progress in the struggle for a more equitable distribution of power, status, and wealth. And there is economic violence, cultural violence, and so much more. So what do you think, where will these conflicts, ongoing conflicts take us if American leadership fails? Well, perhaps we should uh, remember what George Kennan said in relation to the Vietnam War. George Kennan was the father of the uh, containment uh, policy and the brainest of the so-called uh, wise men that forged America's first Cold War uh, after the end of the Second World War. Kennan deeply believed that uh, Vietnam should uh, have been let go its own way. That meant that the US shouldn't have taken sides in its internal disputes. In his view, 
America's willingness to decide the outcome of this domestic conflict was not only inappropriate, but contra contraproductive. Uh, for him, uh, the policy of containment, containment, he was the father of this policy, uh, should, uh, was to be applied only in a strategic and limited points of the world and not at every corner of it. Given the costs uh, for America and the outcome of the Vietnam conflict, he was undoubtedly right. And I think uh, that's, that applies to Corinthians as well. Uh, if that was the case of Vietnam, I mean, one of the most combustible moments of the Cold War with the Soviets, what would be the case today that would make necessary that kind of America's presence in solving, in, in dealing with the domestic problems here and there? Mm. With the exception of a few and very strategic, particularly strategic places, the US shouldn't try to intrude and decide the outcome of local conflicts. What uh, Paul Kennedy calls outreach, imperial outreach, is the biggest threat to any power. And trying to be the policeman of the world would be the biggest expression of this kind of outreach. Especially so if the US is confronted by big domestic problems that have been left on brittle for such a long time. A couple of examples uh, come to mind. America's infrastructure currently ranks 23rd in the world. While according to the OECD PISA test that measures knowledge among students from developed countries, American students rank 25th in math and 21st in science. With problems of this nature, the US needs to need to fix its own house before trying to solve the problems of uh, emerging in every corner of the world. Moreover, yeah. as Kishore Mabubani has argued, uh, the world would be happy to see an America which is strong and self-confident and doesn't need to shine militarily. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. No, it's a good point, but it's a very difficult balance to achieve, right? When you, when you see the rising crimes and uh, so many people suffering uh, across nations, sometimes it's a very complex decision to take, but warfare boundaries are blurring. And we have reached a point where anyone across the nation can get access to all kinds of weapons that were once the exclusive territory of only nation states. That is the democratization of you know, innovation and destruction in a way. So do you see the democratization of war weapons bringing a societal collapse? Well, definitely I see it as a big threat. Uh, you see to so many countries uh, in which 
emerging forces, uh, emerging uh, delinquents, narco-traffickers, and so on, uh, have reached the possibility of matching the power, power of governments. And definitely that poses a huge challenge for, for the survival of civilized society. Uh, by definition, uh, the state has the monopoly of violence. That is the main principle of, uh, of, of, of political science. The only mm -hmm. one that has inside the state the, the monopoly of force has to be the state itself. When others confront the state with equal power, survival of society, it's, uh, it's at risk. And that not only applies in case of uh, narco-traffic situations or whatever, but in highly polarized societies as well. And in this case, polarization becomes the first problem that when uh, that when joined with the access to heavy uh, heavy uh, weapons can create to can create havoc in any society. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true, very true. Excellent point. So this is the last question, Professor Hardy. That your book is excellent. I read it and I am sure my global viewers and listeners would love to have an opportunity to read that book, to, you know, understand it and, you know, to have, if they have questions, how can they reach out to you and where can they access the book? Well, uh, the book was published in me, I think I have The book was published by Pelgrip Macmillan, uh, the British publisher, and uh, well, it, it can be bought in the US through Barnes and Nobles libraries, and uh, but essentially worldwide uh, through Amazon, through uh, all the equivalents of Amazon. Uh, I would say that's the best way to 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 buy it. Although in the US, I know that it's been. Uh, it's been uh, selling uh, in Barnes and Nobles and other uh, chains, library chains. Yes, no one. Yes, definitely. I, I saw the link on Amazon as well. So I'm sure that uh, people who are interested in foreign policy and international relations uh, and are concerned about the strategic security of the not only United States, but the rest of the world would you know, love to have this opportunity to read the book. So thank you so much, Professor Hardy, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on America's two cold wars and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the complex warfare challenges, complex uh, foreign policy challenges facing us and their implications on the global community. So as a result, this Risk Roundup dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. Through the Risk Roundup initiative, Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion brilliant minds like Professor Hardy. This effort aims to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity 
Thank you for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.